On this podcast, we explore fantastical thinking, moral panics, urban legends, conspiracy theories, hoaxes, and crazes, examine the forces that shape our culture, and tell the stories that create the realities we share, and sometimes the realities we don't. I'm your host, Chelsea Weber-Smith, and this is American Hysteria. In the vernacular, it's called a drag ball. You see, each of our contestants is a man. But we are opposed to the exploitation of women by men for entertainment or profit. I have been thrown in jail for gay liberation, and you all treat me this way? I'll tell you the truth, it's a changing world we live in. Yeah, honey, it's here today and gone tomorrow. We return now to our place in the national audience, looking up at the towering American archetype of the drag queen, who has been both beloved and despised, treated as a national darling, a sickening degenerate, a goofy joke, and even a harbinger of doom to come. In part one of our series, we looked at the elaborate balls thrown by William Dorsey Swan, a formerly enslaved man who created a vibrant secret drag scene that was eventually found out and raided over and over again by police. Then we saw how the vaudeville scene produced Julian Eltinge, a well-respected female impersonator, famous enough to end up on Broadway and in silent Hollywood movies, a man who had to go to great lengths to prove just how masculine he was offstage, masculine enough that the public could accept his on-stage quirks and feel comfortable enjoying them. We saw how the Harlem drag balls, made famous during the Harlem Renaissance of the 1920s, paved the way for the pansy craze of the 1930s, when gay was in, and many of the most beloved performers in America came out of the closet to a surprisingly warm reception. Then we saw those dreams dashed as quickly as they came, when the Great Depression led to a loss of work, and thus a loss of masculine identity, and the public deemed homosexuals and gender nonconforming individuals as sexual psychopaths that deserved to be institutionalized or imprisoned. Finally, we witnessed the soldier shows of World War II that contained more than their fair share of drag, where GIs, both closeted gays and dedicated straights, performed funny and surprisingly sexy numbers in women's clothing, on military stages, as well as on Broadway and even on film, all to rave reviews. It was their offstage masculinity that protected them from being labeled sexual deviants. But after the war was over, these shows were no longer deemed the harmless fun they once appeared. 
to be. Now, any gender nonconformity was a matter of national security. All over the United States, women are called upon to leave their homes and take jobs. Among our young unmarried women and among older women whose children are grown, we have a large reserve. They discover that factory work is usually no more difficult than housework. Employers find that women can do many jobs as well as men. Some jobs better. At the end of World War II, 16 million men returned to a country now under the command of iconic butch Rosie the Riveter. Their gals' formerly frilly sleeves rolled up now, elbow deep in the blue-collar work that became their part of the war effort. The same jobs that had long had a deep identity of masculinity psychically attached to them. And many of these women, who had experienced a new freedom while the men were away, able to move freely about, wear what they wanted, spend time with who they wanted, and do what they wanted, weren't keen on giving all of it up. The country at large, traumatized by war, confused by a destabilized gender hierarchy, and flush with wartime cash, hopscotched aggressively into a conservative suburban consumer daydream, focused on the central importance of the white nuclear family with its clearly established roles and rules with women strongly encouraged to return to the duties of mother and homemaker. If a person defends the activities of communist nations while consistently attacking the domestic and foreign policy of the United States, he must be a communist. But there are other communists who don't show their real faces, who work more silently the specter of Cold War communism would soon darken the national doorway, and queer people became a main target of pinko hunter Senator Joseph McCarthy during the Red Scare of the late 40s and 50s. He claimed that gay people were susceptible to blackmail by communist forces, so by virtue of their secret, they were compromised as a whole and had to be neutralized. His Cold War committee created loyalty tests for prospective government workers to prove their heterosexuality. And over the next three years, about 1,700 men and women would be denied work over suspicions of homosexuality. In 1950, McCarthy forced 91 gay people to resign from the State Department, and by 1953, that number rose to 425. When he took office, Eisenhower only ramped up this program, firing thousands of suspected homosexuals, some of whom were simply straight men not masculine enough for authorities to be certain of their sexuality. And then, just for good measure, they went ahead and printed all of their names publicly. The hunt spread to public schools, where the Florida Legislative Investigation Committee 
fired 200 teachers and stripped them of their credentials. In a familiar refrain, committee head Senator Charlie Johns claimed that, quote, Practically all children are susceptible to being recruited into homosexual practices. One never knows when the homosexual is about. He may appear normal, and it may be too late when you discover he is mentally ill. So keep with your group. By the 1960s, governments revived previously existing laws to arrest gay people for doing things like dancing with one another, threatening bars with legal action if they served liquor to homosexuals. Anti-cross-dressing laws from the 1800s were used to arrest the gender non-conforming, with queer people developing what they called the three-article rule, wearing at least three pieces of clothing that matched their sex at birth to avoid being hauled off to jail. Some drag shows were tolerated by local governments on Halloween night, but even then, police were known to wait outside the venues as midnight struck, ready to arrest the cross-dressers as it became, officially, November 1st. The cities raised their cabaret taxes. Police required higher payoffs to avoid the closing of the venues and possible arrest of its patrons. Lost customers and lost revenue led to major budget cuts for smaller clubs, many of whom were forced to trade expensive live music for pre-recorded canned music. Queens who used to sing live lost their band accompaniment and began lip-syncing to pre-recorded music, which would become a staple of drag's uncertain future. I'm just a woman that's only human, one you should be sorry for. Woke up this morning. But, as always, there was no way to truly snuff out the queer community, even as the police patrolled the streets looking for gender traitors. Gay lovers and business partners Doc Brenner and Danny Brown started a variety hour at a place called the Jewel Box Club in Miami, Florida. And by the early 50s, the show began to focus solely on the much maligned field of female impersonation. Doc and Danny wanted to clean up the image of drag, make it classy enough to be something different altogether in this new, more conservative era. If drag was going to survive, it had to conform, which meant that the shows had to appear more straight again, appear being the operative word. They called the performances female impression to avoid the risky comparison to female impersonation. By the 1950s, the Jewel Box Review hit the road with a fully integrated cast at a time when racial mixing was still controversial, even including one drag king by the name of Stormé Delarvery, who would become one of the main fighters in the coming 1969 Stonewall 
uprising. Though Doc and Danny were tough guys with high standards for their queens and kings, they also fostered a safe and supportive place for young queer people to find community in a deeply hostile American landscape many of whom were disowned by their families for being gay or for revealing their desire to perform or live as a different gender. The most popular part of the review was the skill with which these queens mimicked the most famous and most distinctive starlets through their outfits, makeup, mannerisms, and voices. Women like Katherine Hepburn, Betty Davis, Edith Piaf, Claudette Colbert, Donna Reed, Marilyn Monroe, and Mae West. The culture at large may have been turning on drag queens, but many of the famous women they imitated became enamored to the point of wanting to help out the act. At one point, Judy Garland saw Jewel Box Review queen Craig Bailey perform his impression of her and remarked, I never realized I was that pretty. She then taught Bailey how to do her makeup more authentically. Liza Minnelli also saw his impression of her years later and would invite him to do a whole mother-daughter act together. Female impersonator and musician Lynn Carter was one of the biggest stars of the Jewel Box Review in the 50s and 60s, doing what were considered very accurate and very respectful homage imitations of everyone from Barbara Streisand to Carol Channing, Marlene Dietrich, Mae West, and Marilyn Monroe. Lynn, who was white and usually wore a blonde wig, got his start in a Chicago nightclub when he delighted Black actress and singer Pearl Bailey with his impression of her, mercifully not in blackface. Lynn was less about getting the look right and more focused on the voice and mannerisms, which impressed Pearl so much that she started sending him her musical arrangements and the dresses she no longer wore, saying, quote, When I hear Lynn sing, it's like a playback of my own voice. The same thing would happen with Black performer Josephine Baker, who enjoyed Lynn's impression of her so much that she sent him three taxi cabs full of gowns from Balenciaga and Dior. But all were not pleased with his work. White actress Kay Thompson threatened to sue him for using her image. But all that did was get the attention of the gossipy LA public. Despite the national climate, Lynn became such a massive celebrity that he became the first drag queen to grace the stage at Carnegie Hall and would appear on Merv Griffin and other popular talk shows. We have four contestants in a recent beauty contest. No, for reasons which will become very clear, we're going to use first names only. Ladies and gentlemen, the reason for using first names only these very, very charming contestants, is that right now, each one of them is breaking the law. The contest in which they were runners-up was a masquerade. Actually, in the vernacular, it's called a drag ball. You see, 
Each of our contestants is a man. In addition to the female impressionists making their way around the nation with the Jewel Box Review, a more beauty pageant-esque aesthetic was also added to the rehabbed respectability of drag. In fact, there was a full-blown drag pageant national circuit where impersonators would participate to be crowned the queen of the contest. A main architect of this pageant scene was a female impersonator named Flawless Sabrina, who ran 50 of these shows a year from 1959 to 1969, all leading up to the finals in New York City, where the best of the best came together to compete in the Miss All-America Camp Beauty Contest, which closely resembled the structure of the Miss America pageant with evening wear and swimsuit categories. A portion of the proceeds from each event would be given to local grassroots funds for queer housing and medical support. The pageant circuit actually employed at least 100 people, almost all of whom were queer, which means that Flawless just may have been the largest employer of the queer community in her time. More after this. You ever notice how finding time and energy to do the most basic human necessity, eat literal food, has become just another exhausting task jammed into our increasingly inhuman schedules? Well, your spring can be a little more stress-free with Factor. Factor will provide you with delicious, never-frozen, ready-to-eat, gourmet meals that are chef-crafted, dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. Each week, you get to choose from a menu of 35 options to create your perfect breakfast, lunch, or dinner with absolutely no prepping, cooking, or cleaning up. And Factor makes sure you get exactly what you want. You can tailor deliveries to your schedule and customize how many meals you want each and every week, and you can pause anytime. So just head to factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 and use code American American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code American Hysteria 50 at factormeals.com slash American Hysteria 50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. Check out Factor today. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo Concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And now, back to the show. This is a fabulous national. <laughs> America's greatest beauty. I'm here they are. 
famous art world emperor, Andy Warhol, saw one of these shows and decided he wanted to finance the making of a documentary about the 1967 Miss All-American Camp Beauty Contest. And he found a rich benefactor who wrote a check for 10 grand and hired a director named Frank Simon. The hope was to introduce Americans not only to the polished contestants on the pageant stage, but to give them a look into the backstage lives of these gay men and gender nonconforming people. It premiered at the 1968 Cannes Film Festival, and the movie left a serious and positive impression on its audiences. What I'm wearing to the draft boat. <laughs> You've already been drafted, haven't you? Of course not. I'm not old enough. <laughs> well, you know, this friend of mine went to the draft board. Well, I was just talking to him, and I said, why haven't you been drafted? And he said, well, I have been. And I said, well, did you tell them that you were homosexual? He said, no, they told me. Roger Ebert wrote in his review, Using available sound and light, he sends his 16-millimeter cameras creeping into the boudoirs of the contestants and comes back with the startling information that drag queens are very much like the rest of us, and perhaps even more pleasant than the average all-American straight beauty queen. Renata Adler wrote in her New York Times review, so here are all these gentlemen in bras, diaphanous gowns, lipstick, hair falls, and huffs, discussing their husbands in the military in Japan or describing their own problems with the draft. One grows fond of them. In a far less respectful but still positive review, a critic at the San Francisco Examiner wrote, It's a very telling movie. Done with a surprising degree of taste and intelligence and a sensible amount of compassion for the pathetic creatures who are driven by psychoneurotic disorders into the bizarre, ambivalent, and exhibitionist world of the drag queen. They are generally considered freaks by straight and homosexual alike. In the film, there were discussions as well about burgeoning transgender issues, about hormones and surgery, something rarely ever discussed in the mainstream and rarely discussed in the gay community as well. Unsurprisingly, the relatively benign nature of its content was not seen as benign, but extremely controversial for the late 1960s, and the MPAA slapped an X rating on the documentary, citing the fact that the pageant allowed black contestants to compete with white contestants, as well as the swear words and the cross-dressing, still illegal at the time the film was made. So illegal, in fact, that flawless Sabrina was arrested three times while promoting its release in Times Square. The pageant was revolutionary in more ways than one. Any female impersonator was allowed to compete, whereas the Miss America pageant wouldn't be desegregated until 1970. But of course, there were still major internal issues throughout the pageant circuit. 
black drag queens had to whiten their faces with makeup in order to get closer to the beauty standard that they knew the judges were biased toward. At the end of the documentary, the final five queens participate in one more runway walk for the judges to determine the order of the winners. And ultimately, the crown went to an 18-year-old white performer named Rachel Harlow, who the New York Times referred to as a frail, blonde, pouting young man. Veteran drag performer and the only black person competing, Crystal LaBeja, would be named the third runner-up. At this announcement, Crystal left the stage, furious, later confronting flawless Sabrina about what she considered a pageant rigged against her and other queens of color, accusing flawless of playing favorites with her new friend and protege, Rachel Harlow. Monique, would you tell her why you didn't come? Because she knew it's Victor Holler. She said, Crystal Darling, don't go. Because you're not going to get it. And that's why all the true beauties didn't come. It's in bad taste and you're showing your colors and shit. I am, I am doing it bad, but I got an, I have a right to show my color, darling. I am beautiful and I know I'm beautiful. Crystal would go on to become one of the very first drag mothers, those who act as a mentor to young queens getting their start, forming drag families that competed against one another. The House of Lobasia would become one of many small communities of mostly black and brown queer people who created a whole new drag ball culture in the lineage of William Dorsey Swan and Harlem's Hamilton Lodge. These drag show rifts within the queer community were, unfortunately, representative of trouble to come. Trouble that arrived side by side with the bombastic future of gay rights. What do you want the police to do? We want them off our backs. We want them uh, to stop harassing us, stop pushing us around. Speakers demanded a wide range of gay rights, including liberalized laws on sodomy and new laws which would make it illegal to discriminate against a homosexual. With the success of the black civil rights movement of the 1960s, as well as the second wave movement for women's liberation, a gay liberation movement began to take shape as well, kicked off by a police raid in the Greenwich Village gay bar called the Stonewall Inn. As police physically abused the patrons, they fought back with force, leading to a several-day standoff that ended in the cops retreating. It was official. The movement had begun, and the first and foremost step to a different kind of future was coming out publicly to friends and family and staying out publicly no matter what. This included, on the largest scale, the proto-pride parades that sought to eliminate centuries of shame and flip it into a public form of self-love. Say it loud, gay and proud, say it loud! 
Just like during the pansy craze of the 1930s, drag would again become connected to sexuality and offstage gender presentation. And this caused a big response, not only from conservatives building a political and religious anti-gay coalition, but also those within the vastly diverse queer community who also seemed to struggle with gender norms in ways that were not so different from those seeking to quash their entire movement. Queer people of different races, genders, and classes did not always see eye to eye, and sometimes even made villains of each other. At the same time, those who would come to be known as transgender were experiencing new visibility and new opportunities with hormone therapy and gender-affirming surgeries. This meant that the line between drag queens, female impersonators, female impressionists, and transgender people, then called transvestites, became very blurry, and both mainstream society and many in the gay rights movement looked upon them with disdain, concerned, angered that they would sully the gay respectability they had been working to earn with straight Americans. The early push for gay rights in the 1960s, called the homophile movement, had been focused on assimilating into the mainstream, trying to prove that they were no different from straight people. After Stonewall, the Society for Individual Rights, or SIR, was continuing a similar legacy focusing on the rights of mostly middle-class and upper-middle-class white gay men, those who were certainly not immune to their own toxic masculinity. They were concerned that the inclusion of queens might cause the community as a whole to be ridiculed and stereotyped into non-existence, and so they played up their own manhood to counter that possibility. One member of Sir pointed out, quote, while a small minority of Sir members enjoy dressing in women's clothes, the majority prefer to walk like men, talk like men, and dress like men. But about half of the members disagreed, with one saying, quote, anyone should be able to dress any way he wishes. Another member stated, quote, What claims of tolerance do we have for ourselves if we're unable to at least tolerate persons of our own sexual orientation who differ from us only in respect to the manner of their dress? Another Sir member, who ended his letter with a signature that said, Manly, had this to say, quote, who are these hair fairies trying to kid anyway? They ought to hang up their tits for good and try on a pair of Levi's and a leather jacket. That'd be a lot cuter and more appealing. Let's cut this crap. But regardless of this rejection of the gender non-conforming, a new identity was beginning to form. Those who called themselves street queens, those who not only performed as women, but spent at least some of their everyday lives living as women. The street queens who would become engaged in their own fight for civil rights were often people of color, working class or homeless, engaging in sex work to survive. 
Two of these activists started out as homeless teenage street queens, but would soon become Stonewall royalty, Marsha P. Johnson and Sylvia Rivera, known for being two of a group of drag queens of color who fought the hardest against the police at the Stonewall uprising. After Stonewall, Marsha and Sylvia would form the Street Transvestite Action Revolutionaries, or STAR, which would eventually have chapters in Chicago, California, and even England. Why are you here today? Darling, I want my gay rights now. I think it's about time the gay brothers and sisters got their rights, and especially the women. Star, as well as a group calling themselves the Queen's Liberation Front, rose in response to drag queens being forced to walk at the back of the first Pride March in 1970, known then as the Christopher Street Liberation Day Parade. Together, these organizations would successfully lobby New York City to overturn an ordinance against cross-dressing. In a building known as Star House, they began to house, feed, and clothe homeless queer adults and youths, paying rent by doing sex work, becoming de facto mothers to those most in need. Sylvia once said in an interview, quote, We went out and made money off the streets to keep these kids off the streets. We already went through it. We wanted to protect them, to show them that there was a better life. For these street queens, the gay rights movement did not encompass the deepest needs in the community, did not address the issues of class and race, did not look to fulfill the most basic needs of the most vulnerable, and did not fully embrace the gender variant communities that had supported their efforts for years. Many second-wave feminists, including lesbians, felt that drag queens went against what they were fighting for, that they were, as one woman put it, creating a mockery and put-down of women. She continued, quote, They dress up in clothes that no woman would wear and then make women out to be all of the stupid things that society ever said we were. They believed that things like the overblown makeup, the high heels, and the short skirts that some drag queens wore reinforced the stereotypes they were fighting against. By and large, this theory won out, and by 1973, drag queens were still forced to the very back of the parade and were also barred from speaking at the rally that followed. But as members of the anti-drag lesbian feminist liberation group were passing out their flyers, Sylvia grabbed the microphone from the MC. Y'all tell me to go and hide my tail between my legs. I will not no longer put up with this shit. I have been beaten. I have had my nose broken. I have been thrown in jail. I have lost my job. I have lost my apartment for gay liberation, and you all treat me this way? What the fuck's wrong with you all? Think about that. I do not believe in a revolution, but you all do. I believe in the gay power 
I believe in us getting our rights or else I would not be out there fighting for our rights. That's all I wanted to say to your people. Feminist lesbian activist Jean O'Leary followed Sylvia's speech with one of her own. Times like this that I find it very hard to be gay and proud because there's another side of me that's a woman. And I'm insulted by this mockery and these costumes up here by these people. When men impersonate women for for reasons of entertainment or profit, they insult women. We, we support the right of every person to dress in the way that she or he wishes. But we are opposed to the exploitation of women by men for entertainment or profit. As we've seen, there is some truth to Jean O'Leary's argument. The female impersonation of the past that we have covered has sometimes exploited and parodied the image of women for entertainment and profit. But activists like Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson were far less privileged than many of the lesbians who were taking a stand against them. And neither of these street queens were striking it rich with the way that they were dressing. The heated arguments that followed in the crowd between feminist lesbians, gay men, and drag queens only ceased when Bette Midler made a surprise appearance and sang her song, Friends, which is truly one of the gayest things I have ever heard. So drag queens were not male enough for the gay movement and not female enough for the lesbian movement. And for both, they represented a roadblock toward their vision of queer liberation. But it's very important to note that Jean O'Leary eventually had a serious change of heart, recanting her 1973 speech. Quote, Looking back, I find this so embarrassing because my views changed profoundly. I would never pick on a transvestite now. It was horrible. How could I work to exclude transvestites and at the same time criticize the feminists who were doing their best in those days to exclude lesbians? More after this. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. The headlines remind us daily, the world is a dangerous place. The elites in charge say everything's fine, stop noticing, but you know better. And your gut knows that time is short to prepare for a world that is four missed meals away from chaos. My Patriot Supply has helped over three million families become more self-reliant and is the company Americans trust to prepare. 
Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure their best-selling three-month emergency food kits. Each contain delicious breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Secure at least one food kit for each family member. For a limited time, save $200, plus get free shipping on all their Ready Hour three-month emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. My Patriot Supply also has solar power generators, water filtration units, biomass stoves, heirloom seeds, and critical survival gear. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com And now, back to the show. Will you, as a bee-fried hero, take this moment to be your lawful wed wife? Well, if I got to... <laughs> All through the decades we have covered, starting way back in the 1800s, there was another phenomenon featuring female impersonation that delighted many small towns in the conservative South, a tradition they called womanless weddings that still continue today. The performance was exactly what it sounded like. Local men would act out every part of a traditional wedding, including the bride, flower girl, mother of the bride, bridesmaids, and maybe even the jilted ex-girlfriend of the groom. The plays usually presented the bigger and burlier men as the brides and the small and slight men as the grooms for maximum comedic effect. Men wearing fake breasts would sit on the laps of the audience members, kiss both women and men on the lips, and sometimes pull up their skirts to reveal a sexy little garter belt. And it all was perfectly straight, extra masculine in fact, because you had to be a real man to strike that balance just right. And after all, most of the time, they were raising money for a local charity. The earlier versions of womanless weddings featured locals from the lower classes who dressed up and parodied the elite, who looked on with amusement, knowing that the fact that they were being parodied meant their status was high. And through allowing such a mockery to occur, they ensured that any building pressure against the prominent politicians and business owners would be released by such an event. But by around the 1910s, as free black people began to gain more power and the first feminist movement saw women fighting for the right to vote, leaving home and finding work and upsetting traditional family values, the prominent members of society would take over these rituals, casting themselves in roles mocking poor white people, women as well as black people through the use of blackface. The women they played became more defiant and shrill, strong-willed and slutty, parodied representations of the new feminism that, in being made fun of, became less powerful. Referred to by sociologists as a ritual of inversion, these performances presented the very opposite of the community standards and thus reinforced the conservative cultural norms already embedded in the society. 
Women were not supposed to be shrill and demanding of their rights. They were supposed to be the complacent mothers that they had been before, making these deviations into something patently ridiculous. But many female impersonators participated instead in what I think we'll call a ritual of transgression, going against the gender binary to make something closer to an homage to the feminine or to simply embody a part of themselves sincerely. Oftentimes with drag, the parody is not of women themselves, but a blown out campy presentation of the cartoonish hyper-femininity expected of the women of America. The same hyper-femininity that feminists themselves were trying to transcend. Of course, there are many ways to interpret a performance and many different intentions behind a performance. So there is no blanket truth of whether drag exploits women. But the feminists and the lesbians and the gay men who were against the drag and street queens were unintentionally aligning with the kind of good old boys who slipped on dresses and fake breasts to mock women and their desire for equal rights. Those who were looking to continue to suppress the rights of the gay liberation movement and the women's movement, and in doing so, left behind many of those who were there to work with them in a larger solidarity. In very strange manner, he is sure possessed, madam. Why, what's the matter? Does he rave? No, madam, he does nothing but smile. Your ladyship were best to have some guard about you if he come, for sure the man is tainted in his wits. Go call him hither. I, I am as mad as he, if sad and merry madness equal be. <laughs> Now, if we travel way back in time to find the roots of American female impersonation, we can look to the English Elizabethan theater, which was certainly a stark, pure expression of sexism. Women were legally barred from performing on the stage, and so it was the job of men and boys to play their roles. In our modern era, much of what is said about the dangerous influence of drag queens has a close ancestor in the anti-theatricality panic of the 15 and 1600s, with writers in London expressing their outrage over the sins of this new entertainment industry that allowed the sin of cross-dressing to exist boldly on display. In the 20 years before the plays of William Shakespeare and Christopher Marlowe graced the stage, the first theaters were opened in London. It was the late 1500s, and this new form of amusement was growing massive audiences, with attendance numbers matched only by the early American silent movie craze of the 1920s. 
And of course, something this new, popular, and cool caused some serious Elizabethan eyebrow knitting and produced a whole lot of what were called polemics, pieces of writing that represented critical attacks through strong, dramatic, and controversial opinions. Not unlike the outrage industry Twitter diatribes we see today. In 1579, former playwright turned anti-theater activist Stephen Gosson put out a polemic called An Apology of the School of Abuse Against Poets, Pipers, Players, and Their Excusers, which claimed, The law of God very straightly forbids men to put on women's garments. Soon after, Puritan academic John Reynolds wrote, a woman's garment being put on a man doth vehemently touch and move him with the remembrance and imagination of a woman. Preacher Adam Hill spoke of actors whose bodies being made weak and wanton in imitating the going and apparel of women. Expanding on this tirade four years later, in a polemic that was double the size, another writer named Philip Stubes took it even further with his Anatomy of Abuses, calling cross-dressing actors Monsters of both kinds. Half women, half men. Puritan writer William Prine popped out a thousand-page polemic in 1633 called the Histiomastics, which focused heavily on the danger that on-stage cross-dressing would adulterate, emasculate, metamorphose, and debase their noble sex. He told the story of a man who had worn women's clothing, which caused him to degenerate into a woman. But in the eyes of these polemists, not only did donning women's attire on stage sully the man or boy who chose to do so, but also harmed the audience who watched him do it. Stephen Gosson made the claim that the theater effeminized the mind of the watcher to the point where homosexual proclivities might be inspired, that by watching a play, the spectator would automatically and unconsciously be hypnotized into replicating the actor, that the theater could actually change men into a form of woman just by virtue of watching. Historian Laura Levine wrote in her essay, Men in Women's Clothing, Anti-Theatricality and Effeminization from 1579 to 1642, quote, male characters who went as women became reduced, powerless, or degenerate because their masculine identity itself was fluid, pliable, and unstable. It's as if femaleness were the default position, the thing one were always in danger of slipping into. She wrote that the anti-theatricality movement was consumed with, quote, the terror that there is no masculine self. Because if there is no concrete, unchangeable masculine self, then there is no inherent, inherited superiority. 
if manhood and its power is not guaranteed by birthright, then it was something that could be magically stolen by a drag queen trickster monster, turning others into similar monsters just by virtue of being seen. It's often stated that the men writing on behalf of the anti-theatricality movement were part of a specifically Puritan attack on the stage, representing a united religious position. But there is another consideration here. If we look a little deeper, those most vocal in the anti-theatricality movement were not strictly Puritans launching a religious and social objection. In fact, there is evidence and quite a lot of academic speculation that Stephen Gosson, as well as other polemists, were actually paid by the City of London to produce these tirades against the city, suggesting that several of the main anti-theatricality writers were not completely sincere in their attacks, but rather peddling outrage for profit and personal gain. The truth was that the majority of Londoners had other things on their mind, and they had little interest in the controversy of theater cross-dressing. In historian Tracy Hill's essay, He Hath Changed His Copy, Anti-Theatrical Writing in the Turncoat Player, she notes that these polemics, quote, were used quite opportunistically by the stage's civic opponents to give the impression of an overall groundswell of opinion against theater going. Whatever their true intentions, their outrage had an effect. By the beginning of the first English Civil War, the government ordered all theaters to be closed down, citing their, quote, lascivious mirth and levity. I'll let you make the connection between this and our modern era of anti-drag attacks. I definitely heard a voice over in this section of the arena over here. Uh, I heard the voice. Well, I'll tell you the truth. It was a, a high-pitched feminine voice. And, um, well, I, you know, I took it for granted. It was a woman. <laughs> but then you never know, honey, today. I'll tell you the truth. It's a changing world we live in. Yeah, honey, it's here today and gone tomorrow. The drag scenes of American history are just as complicated as any other scene in American history, providing experiences that could be both liberating and oppressive, sometimes simultaneously. The places where drag was performed were racially integrated earlier than their straight counterparts, but still fell short when it came to enforcing equality. Despite their contributions of activism, housing and clothing young people that were cast out of society and giving them a place to perform and make a better life, drag queens were painted broadly as transgressive entertainers who were either a quirky show to catch or a threat to neutralize no matter what. 
Whether those who were critiquing drag queens were conservative politicians, religious reformists, police officers, opportunist polemists, anti-vice crusaders, psychologists, journalists, feminists, lesbians, gay men, or anyone else, it all seemed to come down to the question of whether the person was too male, not masculine enough, too feminine, or not female enough. This is because the gender binary has long been the crack down the center of our world, a chasm that keeps us apart, keeps us making enemies of each other, some grasping desperately for the power denied to them, others grasping desperately to hold on to the power that feels like it's slipping away. But what if the prison of pure femininity becomes less powerful through parody? What if women become more powerful through homage? What if men, long imprisoned by a constant, anxious, hard-line self-inventory, hunting down any feminine thought or urge, every tiny, unremarkable, potential homosexual inclination, and shooting it to death with a mental bazooka, could take a long-needed, deep breath? As we've seen through the last two episodes, we define what manhood means, often in relation to work and war, causing rage against drag queens when that narrow masculine identity is challenged. But people of all genders deserve to experience the freedom we claim to hold so dear in this country, inside the vast country of themselves. There are many who don't see it this way, and instead see monsters coming after the most important American values, see monsters coming to take away the hard-earned power of women and take away the long-term power of men. At their worst, like the polemists, many see an opportunity to exploit our deepest fears around power and powerlessness, to make money peddling their outrage, making terrible meaning from something that perhaps holds far less meaning than they would like us to believe. Drag performance, as revolutionary as it is and as controversial, is at its very heart about having fucking fun. Most people who've been to a modern drag show can attest to the way your cheeks ache from laughing, how your throat goes raspy from cheering, how the audience is suspended, not in the gender of it all, but in the spirit, all suddenly fluent in the secret gay language of camp, where the small becomes huge, where the quiet becomes loud, where the heartbreak becomes humor, where the dull becomes neon. 
where those whom society has deemed worthy of shame find a long-denied, larger-than-life confidence and find an audience, finally, who waits with bated breath to love them. In these two episodes, we have seriously considered the history of drag, and we've seen how different time periods have taken it so seriously as to try to lock up any gender traitors who might dare slip into that gold lame. But as Susan Sontag wrote in her 1964 essay, Notes on Camp, quote, the whole point of camp is to dethrone the serious. Camp is playful, anti-serious. Camp is a solvent of morality. It neutralizes moral indignation, sponsors playfulness. When we are too caught up in the meaning of it all, we miss the point. We miss the opportunity to inhabit a brighter world, one that, even when locked in the very back of the closet, continues to thrive in secret. Behind the faux fur coats and the shimmering gowns, there is an opening, a path that can lead anyone, anyone, to freedom. You just have to be brave enough. This was American Hysteria. If you haven't heard about our new project called the Urban Legends Hotline, listen up. You can go to AmericanHysteria.com and leave us a message about an urban legend that you heard growing up. And if it sparks joy within us, we might do a full investigation into your teenage tale. So head to AmericanHysteria.com and leave us a message on the Urban Legends Hotline. If you want to get more of our show, you can head to patreon.com slash American Hysteria, where you'll get ad-free early episodes as well as access to Hysteria Home Companion, a talk show that I do with producer Miranda about some of the stories that were cut from the episodes. That's patreon.com slash American Hysteria. You can find us on Instagram at American Hysteria Podcast. And if you have a moment and you want to leave us a review on the app of your choosing, it really helps us out. American Hysteria is written, produced, and hosted by me, Chelsea Weber-Smith. Our sound designer is Clear Como Studios. Our research assistant is Riley Swadelius-Smith. Our producer and editor is Miranda Zickler. And our voice actor is Will Rogers. Thanks, as always, for listening. And when you head out to the show, make sure you tip your drag queens. And I hope you have a great week. Hey, podcast listener. Do you love talking about movies, music, TV, comics, and games? Then you should be listening to The Great Pop Culture Debate, back in bigger than ever for season nine. This season, the panelists discuss the best James Bond film, the best Elton John single, 
the best Nickelodeon original series, the best Batman villain, and so much more. Find the show wherever you listen to podcasts or head to greatpopculturedebate.com. More than 100 topics are already available. Subscribe today.